I'd rather be dead I'd rather be dead I'd rather be dead Than wet my bed I'd rather be dead I'd rather be dead I said dead Than wet my bed You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. This week is a group chat session. Maybe that's a bad term. Um, I have three stellar guests on to discuss Black Eye, the anthology, Graphic Transmissions to Cause Ocular Hypertension. That is a mouthful. Um, My guests are editor Ryan Stanfest, uh, contributor and uh, Ink Studs' uh, favorite Jeet here, as well as cartoonist and contributor to Black Eye, um, and someone who I've been a fan of for quite a while, Onsmith. Uh, thank you, 
all three of you for coming on today. Good to be here, sir. It's an honor. Um, so let's kind of jump into Black Eye. Ryan, this is your second collection that you've put together. The previous one, I seem to remember, it's lost in my balance of stuff, was a kind of curated art show you had done for a university, wasn't it? Yes, uh, the first book I had done was actually uh, an exhibition catalog uh, for an exhibition I curated called Funny Not Funny, and that was for the University of Michigan. They have a gallery in Detroit uh, called Work Detroit, and I put an exhibition together for that uh, based on the idea of black humor in comics. So technically, Black Eye would be my first anthology uh, since the first book was uh, technically an exhibition catalog, so this is my second period. Yeah. I'm a novice. <laughs> I don't know. Two books is still uh, nothing to sneeze at. Uh, um, now, what was the idea when putting this book together? Um, I mean, you, you're very, it's a very specific viewpointed book, and it seems like it's not a haphazard anthology where in this you, you really had a strong curatorial mind for it. Well, the the idea for Black Eye came out of, I mean, did grow out of Funny Not Funny, where it's it's a continued exploration for me of an interest in black humor. Uh, and black humor, I guess there's two different ideas of black humor <clears throat> that I had to contend with. And one uh, is a very American idea that came around in the 1960s. It was a gentleman by the name of Bruce J. Friedman who put together an anthology uh, of writings that he fit under the category of black humor. He later said he preferred to call it tense fiction than black humor. Uh, and that has a lot to do with, and there's this American idea that there's a kind of, um, there's a, a nihilism built into uh, that kind of humor, and it usually centers around death, uh, taboo subjects. Then there was another idea that interests me a lot more, which was uh, by Andre Breton, who founded Surrealism, and in the 1930s, he had uh, this idea of actually coming up with the term black humor, and it came from two places. It was uh, the philosopher Hegel, and he uh, had this idea of a kind of objective humor, and then Freud, a gallows humor, and you put these two things together, and, and it's, a, it's a humor that doesn't necessarily elicit belly laughs. You don't go to black humor for yucks but it's something that uh, you may laugh at it, but then there's a kind of psychological, um, you know, uh, doubling around where you have to think about, well, why did I just laugh at that? Why did I think that was funny? That shouldn't be funny. And that's what Breton was after, uh, to kind of self-reflexive humor. I know that doesn't sound funny at all. <laughs> it's so dry talking about this. But, uh, but at its core... At the core of this, uh, that's what's there, and that's what has been driving me. And uh, and I thought that comics were a great fit for exploring black humor, that when I looked around, and particularly when I looked at alternative or independent comics, I saw a lot of black humor, you know, in the American variety and the, the Andre Breton variety. And I thought this would be a good thing to start presenting and putting together. On Smith, I'm curious... As an artist, how do you feel hearing what Ryan says there? How do you feel your work fits into that? Uh, well, I haven't thought too much about it. Um, I think, you know, uh, just from an artistic standpoint, it's hard to 
um, separate my personality and my uh, worldview from the work I make. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't really sit back and, and I'm not saying Ryan does this, but I, I don't um, put that into context when I make the work. It's not I'm thinking of Andre the Tom uh, when I'm drawing, you know, or yeah. black humor. Like, um, it's just part of my personality, I guess. Um, and it's just part of life, I think. I think that I witness things that have humorous elements in it or or just the, the irony in the nightly news is just full of it. Um, I, I think it's a coping mechanism, too. You know, like, I have to laugh, otherwise I will bawl my eyes out and just, or lock myself in my room for, forever. Um, so, yeah, I don't... Yeah, I mean, it's really great to sit back and think about it, though, to, to, to make the work, um, kind of um, have articulate people like Ryan and Jeet actually talk about this stuff, <laughs> because I can't. I just make it and let it go. So, yeah, I don't know if that really answers the question or not. But. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's something within the mortality of what you just said, which made me think really quickly of the back of the book, where you've got the Danny Hellman drawing of Wally Wood, and mm-hmm. what was this this specific idea where you've got Wally Wood, you're also mentioning um, some other artists like uh, Jack Cole, Von Baudet, and Rory Hayes, you know, these infamous, famous cartoonists who passed away um, through different means. Uh, how, how are you linking this as part of that, or do you feel like there's something that Onsmith touched on there about that dark humor that affects these dark souls. Are you directing that towards me? Towards you, or even Jeet, if you have I some think comments. Jeet would be, yeah, I'd like to hear what Jeet well, would Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. I mean, the thing that Wallywood and the other cartoonists that are mentioned on the back all have in common, I mean, let's be frank about it, is that they all kill themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they're <laughs> this long litany of uh, uh, suicidal cartoonists. And um, I think even that very phrase, suicidal cartoonist, maybe gets at some of what we're dealing with, with black humor, where, you know, like, suicide is a terrible thing uh, and a painful thing. And then cartoonists are supposed to be, you know, the laugh makers and uh, um, telling uh, uh, jokes. And it's that combination, the the incongruity between uh, the sort of uh, uh, something very dark and painful with the idiom of comics which is supposedly very light, that I think gives a lot of the energy or friction of black humor. Do you have any comments to go with that, Ryan? No, I'd agree with that uh, completely. I mean, there is a kind of... Uh, I, I think there's a, a view of the uh, cartoonist as being a uh, solitary figure. And, uh, and in, in some way, this relates to my interest in finding black humor in, in the medium of comics, that... Uh, comics, in many ways, is a, is a DIY medium that uh, it doesn't take much to uh, put ink on the paper, and if you'd like to publish it in a, in a cheap way yourself, you can do that. And it allows for, uh, I think, an unfiltered uh, way of responding to the world. And if you want to respond to the world using uh, dark or black humor, you can do that. Uh, in some ways, it's to me, uh, in close proximity to a stand-up comedy, you just need an audience, you can stand up, you can deliver very transgressive material, you don't need an entire apparatus uh, that would cost a lot of money to present it. So I think there's something uh, to the idea of uh, cartoonists maybe uh, having a certain amount of emotional 
no more than anyone else, I should say, emotional uh, baggage, but they just have, they're able to find the medium uh, to put it out into the world, uh, to release it, you know. Yeah, I think that's true. I think one of the interesting things about the anthology is the way that um, it links black humor in comics to a tradition, because uh, there's uh, several essays in the book that deal with various um, uh, earlier examples of black humor, like the uh, Panic, which is a, a knockoff of Mad Magazine that was, uh, or Mad Comics that was done in the early 50s mm -hmm. uh, by the same people that were publishing Mad Comics. Uh, and uh, uh, as well as I have an essay in there about S. Clay Wilson, who did um, a lot of uh, very potently grotesque uh, and over-the-top work in the late 60s. And so I think one of the things that the anthology really shows is that there is a long history and tradition of uh, this type of work in comics, and uh, that someone like Onsmith is very much working within that tradition, uh, and uh, that there's a kind of, um, I mean, it's, it's weird to think about all these cartoonists who are doing work that's very ultra, very shocking, dealing with um, very disturbing material as forming a community, but there is a kind of community uh, and tradition within comics of this. Uh, and it might be worth asking, like, why? Uh, I mean, Ryan mentioned the... Uh, uh, do-it-yourself aspect and the um, under-the-radar aspect of comics. Uh, I think uh, perhaps also the way in which comics is rooted in um, sort of uh, childhood is very important. Like, it's among the earliest drawings that people, I mean, people like read comics starting when they're very young and often cartoonists start drawing when they're very young, even before they can read. And there's a sense in which uh, a lot of the potency of comics comes from um, the access that it gives you to that sort of unfiltered, uncensored child's mind. And that someone like S. Clay Wilson and people who follow in that tradition are trying to like um, use art to access that sort of uh, raw emotional state uh, uh, and um, uh, the sort of um, pre-adult um, imagination imagination that is like uh, um, unfiltered by social rules or censorship. I, th I think Wilson is a really stellar example of kind of all that you're pulling together and he also kind of ties into what we were talking before with the self-destructive cartoonists like Wally Wood and Jack Cole mm -hmm. um, and so was that a specific choice with Wilson? Um, was he someone you'd well, been thinking about or did Ryan approach you about talking about Wilson? Um, I, I, I think Ryan might remember the details but we, more than I did. I mean, we, we, when he was putting together the anthology, we were talking about various people that we could be uh, writing about, and we went back and forth with some names. Um, I think, I mean, with Wilson, I was interested in him because he has been a little bit in the news uh, because of the unfortunate um, uh, accident that happened to him. And then also, I kind of feel like that generation of underground cartoonists are currently underrated. Mm -hmm. that because what's valued in comics right now is often like the graphic novel and sort of very emo-sensitive storytelling, that um, there's a kind of tradition of people like S. Clay Wilson who are just doing very outrageous stuff with, you know, these uh, uh, pirates that are like, you know, hacking each other up and having orgies with these uh, bike bikers. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, it's, it's a tradition of cartooning that's not respectable, that's very... Um, uh, childish and in your face, 
and uh, that is a very important tradition which is currently undervalued. And I thought that the, talking about Wilson is a way of reminding people um, uh, that this stuff exists and that it's important and that it's had a huge impact. And the funny thing about Wilson is, um, in comparison to a lot of other folks, is he got involved in more uh, kind of trying to use, think of the right term, like his work with Burroughs would have been a higher profile, uh, higher critical value would have been attached to it than a lot of the, the other contemporaries, I think. Well, I mean, I think the other thing with Wilson and also a lot of the, some of the Zap artists is that they do have a very big profile in the art world yeah. more than in comics. That if you go to museums, you know, some of like Robert Williams or S. Clay Wilson, they, have, they get shows and they are have that sort of prominence. Um, and I think that's actually another interesting aspect of this whole black humor tradition, which I think this anthology really brings out, that it's very much a visual tradition, that it's um, the artists who tend to work in this tend to be like really trying to get that, that powerful poster-like eye-grabbing image. Um, so it's a little bit different than the traditional narrative cartooning, which is like um, sometimes uh, downplays uh, visual splendor. Uh, so if you, if you look, I mean, if you look through the anthology, like all the artists are very uh, keen on image making as mm -hmm. a primary goal, and a lot of the the power of the comics comes from how strong the images are and how visceral and how they immediately like you know go um, uh, straight from the page into like your uh, brain and they're seared into your brain, and uh, that's something you can see in people like in the tradition of S. Clay Wilson and the other Zap cartoonists. And as I said, I think that tradition. Um, is a little bit underappreciated in general in the comics world, like uh, in part because uh, with the rise of the graphic novel, narrative is valued more than sort of um, the spectacular visual imagery. In January, Cousin Fred, we found him in the attic dead. In February's odd adventure, Father lost his dentures In March Fiona had a fright While coming home alone one night Some men in a long black car Made her get in and drove her far In April Horace left behind What little thought, what little mind He may have had in the result Joined an unknown eastern cult Tattooed his ears, pierced his nose Glides around on hennet toes His relatives are unforgiving Assert he's no longer living The hip deep
happened to fall overboard into Norway's deepest fjord. In October, Alice was betrothed to Edgar, whom she found she loathed. His behavior ever since has been enough to make her wince. In November, it was rather frightening when baby Boo was struck by lightning. The experts think perhaps he'll walk and even sort of learn to talk. And in December, Amy's luck was rotten while singing Die Frau and Schotten. Without warning, lost her voice. The twist of fate had no choice. The hip That one panel gag is so important as a part of this mm-hmm. book, um, which someone like Scott McCloud would argue that isn't even comics in some ways. Um, and so what's the importance of having that as a part of this, the, the one panel, um, that value you're attaching to it? I'd like to hear Ansmith about how he feels about using that single panel gag mm-hmm. approach. Yeah. Aunt Smith. Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't. I couldn't really hear Ryan. But uh, okay. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no. That was. We want to hear what you think of the utilization of the one panel because that's your piece in here is a two-page spread, a different one-panel gags. Yeah. Um, well, I, I got really interested in in one-panel gags um, mainly by um, by looking at comics by Ivan Brunetti. Um, mm-hmm. I learned more through him um, and the history of one-panel gags, like Virgil Parch, uh, a lot of the New Yorker gag guys from the 40s, um, 30s and 40s, William Steig. Uh, there's something about like the arresting image that is, that's there and gone um, quickly and that can also be built and, and have multi-layers by using um, the caption with the image. So there's an interplay between the two. Um, I, I, yeah, I find it to be really powerful, um, very graphic, and and doing a two-page spread like I did um, can also just kind of develop an entire narrative, but you know, between those panel, between those one-panel gags, there's there's like 
there's kind of like more of a, a viewpoint going on, maybe a theme, obviously death <laughs> would be a theme that I used in it, but uh, yeah, yeah um, but yeah, that there's some sort of larger picture as you arrange them like that. Um, I still think that they stand alone, stand just on their own just, just fine, I think. I was talking to a friend recently um, where I got really interested in one pound gags, and I realized that it was like when I was a child going through Hustler magazine, uh, there was a one-panel gag uh, comic called Chester the Molester, um, and it was and and I I realized, okay, not only is it the one-panel gag, it's filthy and violent, you know, sexually sexual and violent, mm-hmm. and that really had a big impact on me, I guess, because I'm still kind of doing it, you know, <laughs> so yeah, um, I think it's. I think it is kind of underrated um, to a certain degree. I think that because it's it's just a, a, a little uh, one panel, it's not this grandiose, you know, graphic novel that it, it's somehow cheap. But I kind of I don't mind that it's cheap and ephemeral too. I think that sometimes very large statements in 500 pages, you know, work fine. But so can it can happen a very large statement in, in one panel. So there you go. I don't know. Yeah. Well, the one panel thing is really has this value of being a kind of a hit and run art. Like mm-hmm. it's just it's like a jab, right? Like it really uh, yeah. is a sort of quick punch, and then you kind of have to try to recover from it. Uh, but I also like, I mean, your comment is exactly dead on. That if you have like um, a several of these one panels, like they do add up to a kind of narrative, and you really see that in Ivan's work, Ivan Bernetti's work, and in mm-hmm. your work as well. Like there's a kind of interconnectedness that the reader forms from these fragments. Uh, I mean, in some ways, it's a bit tied to the sort of fragmented storytelling that uh, Ivan Bernetti's been doing, and that uh, Dan Klaus and uh, Chris Ware also do on occasion. Like, it's just like you break up uh, the the material into little fragments and let the reader try to form their own judgment. But and so, in some ways, um, this argues against the sort of Scott McCloud view that these things aren't comics, because I think that there is they don't have like a sequence of time, but there's like an implied sequence. Um, of theme, and there's also a kind of sequence of, because they all, always imply an event that happened before, and then sometimes an event that happens after the panel. So the reader is, is always filling in the material, and uh, the images that uh, Onsworth does are very, obviously, graphic and uh, horrific, but then a, a lot of the horror also comes from what it implies about the world uh, that uh, is uh, taking that these uh, events are taking place in. Something I've been kind of talking with friends about is uh, the idea of uh, utilizing comics, kind of stepping away from the narrative, but basically comics on ideas and um, not being so sequential or um, have a time frame to it. And I think you can definitely get that with a lot of the the one panel and also a lot of the dark humor stuff where it's... That's the idea, is is the comedy or the the idea, the the darkness... Um, which I'm fascinated about. Like I, I think it's we should, you know, pretty loudly acknowledge that graphic novels is still a pretty new thing in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing I really appreciate about this book is that Ryan, you're able to kind of create this narrative where you've taken a work like Panic and kind of brought new attention to it because it's pretty hugely overlooked now because of you know how much people focus on the Kurtzman mad stuff where this also came out at the same time and caused a lot more problems than mad could have at all in its early days 
Yeah, there, there, was, uh, there was some censorship issues swirling in the air at that time, and, and panic just uh, came along at the right moment uh, to tap into that, and uh, which was ironic considering uh, something that happened with Black Eye. Uh, but uh, I, w I did want to pick up on something, a few things uh, said by uh, both Ann Smith and, and Jeet. Um, you know, Jeet had said, had, had mentioned the idea of the essays in the book presenting a historical uh, sort of continuum, and that was very intentional. And uh, for me, one of the most overlooked um, uh, contributions uh, to uh, comic art is uh, a, a book called The Adventures of Phoebe Zeitgeist uh, by Michael O'Donohue and uh, Frank Springer, that Bob Levin does a great job uh, unearthing and writing about in his inimitable style. Uh, and uh, what's interesting about O'Donohue is uh, the author of that is, to me, he falls in this great place between Breton and American humor, where he helped shape uh, a contemporary idea of humor. He uh, was one of the main writers on the National Lampoon in its early golden years. Uh, not golden, but its prime years. And... Uh, and also was the lead writer, first lead writer on Saturday Night Live. So he introduced black humor to American society, but it still had that kind of self-reflexive edge to it. And that self-reflexiveness is something that, you know, uh, bringing this full circle is, is what the gag panel is all about for me. I mean, that's what I love about the gag panel is that it, uh, you know, Jeet said it delivers a punch, which it does. Uh, there's something pure about it, but even after you read it, uh, you know, rather than dismissing it, I find that I want to linger around it a little bit longer rather than turning to the next page, looking for the next step in the sequence. Uh, the gag panel forces me to, well, wait a minute. You know, what's that little space in there between the text and the image? It's so distilled that I want to spend a little bit more time with it. And I certainly do that a lot with uh, Onsmith's uh, gag panels. Uh, as horrific as they can be, uh, there is a cumul cumulative power to them and I start to question, well, you know, what's going on here? Uh, what's the relationship between these, uh, you know, these offhanded remarks and these uh, characters that are doing this awful stuff? Um, so that, that plays again. It goes back to this whole self-reflexive thing that I'm interested in black humor. What was your original question, Robin? I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense what I said, though. Yeah, I think I went on a bit of a meandering tangent there, so forgive me yeah. for my... Uh... Actually, since Ryan mentioned Bob Levin, um, I can tie that in, uh, who contributes to the uh, Black Eye. I should also mention that Bob Levin also wrote a book called Most Outrageous, which is about the cartoonist uh, Dwayne Tinsley, yeah. who created Chester the Molester. And uh, it, there's a kind of fascinating story that uh, Bob uh, tells about uh, uh, Tinsley's life and legal history in that patented Bob Levin way. So uh, again, for anyone interested in, in the larger history of this, uh, that's worth looking up. Uh, and uh, yeah, perhaps Chester the Monster could have also been the title for uh, Chester Brown's new book. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, gee. Chester the Libertarian Molester. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> oh, um, I want to talk a bit about the contemporary folks in this book. We've got On Smith. Um, you also have uh, some other folks, which I'm really happy to see in there that a lot of people probably may not know about. Uh, one is, uh, and I'm totally going to mispronounce his name. Sorry, M Max Klopfeller. Klopfelter. 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 I'm sorry, Max. <laughs> uh, he's fantastic. 
and uh, I'm curious, like some of the new folks that you're bringing in, kind of the choice of focusing on this new work um, and mixing it with the old. So, like, tell me about some of the those choices. Well, I drew up a list uh, in the very beginning, a kind of wish list of uh, you know cartoonists whose work I had come into contact with, and I thought this is really good stuff. It's strong, and it really uh, touches upon this black humor thing that you know I'm clearly obsessed with. And uh, so they already exhibited symptoms of, of a black humor. <laughs> And uh, because I didn't want to impose this on anybody, I thought, well, I'd like to pull this out. You know, I already see this. Uh, so a lot of the cartoonists that I chose uh, came out of that, you know, me feeling that already uh, in, in their work. And, uh, and then the way in which, um, you know, I sort of, when I approached uh, each person, I sort of described my, my hope for the anthology and then what they produced. Uh, when I edited the sequence of the book together, uh, I was looking to find a relationship between those historical examples, the essays, some of the older work, uh, so that they can talk to one another, which I think they do uh, in many cases. Yeah. No, I'm really, you know, Max's work is just great, and, uh, and it does have that. I mean, not only is there this beautiful... Uh, approach to drawing, you know, which G talked about earlier, which is inherent in this kind of this kind of black humor work, but just the, uh, you know, the, the timing, the punchlines are great in this. Knocks the air out of you, yes. And I think that there's also interesting linkages where you're creating with, say, someone like Wilson and having someone like Al Columbia in there, who are both very uh, unique, dark figures, and I see a lot of crossover between them in a lot of ways as well. Yeah, I you know I had placed uh, there's a there's a James Moore uh, piece before uh, Jeet's piece on Escalade Wilson, and following that there's uh, something by Paul Nutt, a uh, great artist out of Chicago, and uh, I think he really tapped into uh, to me it was, there was a conversation between the visceral qualities of, of Wilson and and something like that of, of Nutt's work, so I, I was looking for that uh, mm -hmm. when I was thinking about putting this together. Yeah. Now. Recently, uh, in the beginning of May, for TCAF, you had copies going up to Toronto to launch the book. I forget who was bringing it up. Was it Sparkplug? Intrepid, uh, Tom Neely. Tom Neely was. Okay. And so tell folks what happened there. Well, I wasn't there, so I can't give the, the, the truest account. Uh, you know, uh, Tom was my, uh, what would I call him, my bag man, my courier, you know? <laughs> Uh, bring, bringing the product across the border, and uh, and I guess uh, you know they were stopped for he was stopped he was uh, I guess he was with uh, Dylan Williams, and uh, they were stopped uh, at the border. This was in the Buffalo Crossing. Uh, that sounds funny, Buffalo Crossing. I do imagine Buffalo running across, but the <laughs> Buffalo New York Crossing. And uh, just for normal, I guess, tax reasons, uh, you know, check out tax forms and whatnot. And then uh, something happened where the uh, one of the border guards looked into a box and found uh, a copy of Black Eye, uh, opened it to a page, and the page he happened to open it to uh, was the Smith spread, blood clot. <laughs> now, which is fine, you know, there's a reason why I put it in the front of the book, you know. So, uh... But uh, 
And I guess, uh, from what I've been told, again, this is second-hand knowledge, that the uh, border guard took particular offense to one panel uh, in blood clots, uh, which involves uh, urination. And, uh, and he said, I, I believe, uh, well, we don't allow that here. You know, I guess confusing reality with, uh, with uh, some inked lines. Uh, so on that basis, he continued to look through the rest of the book, and Tom proceeded to uh, try to rationalize the publication and say, look, it's about humor, satire, there's essays uh, you know, showing the history of this sort of thing, uh, but the guard wouldn't have it confiscated, all five copies, you know, which is an dangerous quantity, and said that they would be sent to Ottawa for further review. And if it was determined that they were unsafe, uh, you know, obscene was the word, or that they would be destroyed, uh, and then if not, they'd be sent back. Well, we did get a call. Tom got a call, uh, I guess, uh, about three or four weeks ago, saying they're not obscene. They would be shipped back after the Canadian postal strike ended, and, and all would be well again. So that's, that's pretty much the story. It's a... Uh I don't know if G, you can touch on this, but it is interesting. It's a bit of a Canadian tradition here of uh, of challenges at the border. Yeah, well, I mean, I think um, the the big issue is the border, I think, more than anything else, because um, the rule in Canada seems to be that if you're inside the country, you can do whatever you want. Uh, and, in fact, art, an artist like uh, Julie Doucette, you know, who does uh, very comparable work, uh, got government funding. <laughs> to to do her work and have it published, but if you have uh, do the same work um, outside of Canada and you bring it in, there's always the danger of being stopped at the border. Uh, because I, I guess it is it, tied in with the way which border control is used to define the nation. Um, and I would add, you know, like Black Eye falls into a long and venerable Canadian tradition because other works that have been stopped at the border or on the list of forbidden books in Canada include works by uh, Voltaire, Rousseau, uh, Balzac, James Joyce, and D.H. Lawrence. They're uh, all perverts, so all of them. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. So, so we're, 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 in a, we're in a very proud tradition. Um, although, I guess now we aren't in that tradition because uh, uh, it was found not to be obscene. So, so yeah, maybe in the ne- you could put the next uh, edition of uh, Black Eye and say, you know, not obscene, Canadian government. <laughs> yeah, I, I was a little disappointed that it wasn't banned. I, I, I want to aim higher, ne- or lower. I want to aim lower next time and, uh, and see if, um, if I can pull that off. But uh, if I can actually get something banned. But I, you know, my first response uh, was, I mean, uh, I thought it was a joke, and I thought it was a little silly considering, you know, the kind of material that the world that we live in. It just didn't seem to make any sense to me. And I certainly don't think that... Uh, of course, you know, not. Uh, I have a view, uh, a very different view from somebody who's not used to looking at this kind of material. But uh, you know, it, it was clearly not obscene to me. Um, so the and what what was strange is how a conversation had developed beyond the incident itself. And I received lots of emails, and there were stories that would sort of change the uh, circumstances. Uh, you know, uh, as a bad Xerox copy, a third, fourth, fifth generation Xerox copy, and the story would online, and, uh, and it got kind of strange, um, you know, some of the things that were said, saying that the book was just chock full of sex and violence, uh, which it's not. I mean, there is sex and violence in there, but it's, uh, uh, when you look at the whole of the book, uh, it's not there just to shock, and I think even, uh, you know, looking at Onsmith's work, 
uh, what we were saying earlier, when you look at these uh, panels and you read them, uh, there's a reason for them. You know, there's a context. Uh, it's saying something about violence and about callous behavior rather than just being callous. Well, can you um, kind of give a response to the importance of work like this challenging social norms where, um, you know, and, and like the authors that Jeet's mentioned, uh, there's this history of like really pushing forward ideas of what is acceptable and changing that. So why is, why is it important to have work that is challenging 
these social values. Why is that important? On Smith's view, what do you think? Oh uh, well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think it's Im I don't know. I think it's important just because um, there, it's all there. I think that that many people are uh, either having to deal with with issues dealt with in this in this manner, um, or think about it. You know, like think about I don't know death. Think about violence. Think about all these sorts of things, it's just, it's life in general, I guess. Um, I, what it, what appeals to me is that when when it is challenging the social norms, when it, I think it's just kind of creating more of a dialogue, I, I want to talk about it because life in general is perplexing to me at times. It's like, I don't understand how this can happen. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't even know how that, you know, um, life in general can be so cruel and so heartless. Um, you know, I, I guess I'm not naive at all, but it's just that um, I want people to talk about things a little bit more, or or get beyond them, or or stri or strip them down, or deconstruct them. I guess. And in in the gag panels I did for Black Eye, I, I kind of attempted to do that, making fun of myself for 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 kind of being drawn to it, but also making poking fun at people who do commit these acts that that are cruel, that are heartless, that are, they're sometimes just mundane, like, there's nothing, I don't, I don't, I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, I don't necessarily want to glorify this stuff, I think more, I want to get beyond it or hope for something better, um, which I think if you're challenging a norm that is, that is, like, I guess basically ignoring something or pushing it away or, or frowning on it or not wanting to talk about it, repressing, um, then that's that's just a good thing, just to ask questions and talk talk about it. I guess, yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of stumbling over my words. I, I can't. It's no, so it's big. Yeah. I can't really. It makes, yeah, it I can't. A lot of, I mean, what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me, and it's what I what I was hoping for with the anthology. I mean, at one point, um, Ron Smith had emailed me. I was talking about some early criticism of the book, where uh, two of the criticisms aimed at it were that it was nihilistic and, and too depressing. And uh, and one of the things that Ann Smith had written to me, which uh, really stuck with me, and it's something that I certainly believed going into this, was that a lot of the artists uh, in the anthology, you know, want something better. Uh, they want a better dialogue. There there is there is a sense of uh, dismay or confusion, and I would count myself uh, in that group too, uh, which is why I gravitate towards the provocative nature of black humor uh, that it provokes for a reason. It says, uh, and if it is nihilistic, I mean, I, I you know, uh, there's a tradition of nihilism in art, in punk, and certainly in Dada, um, and and nihilism. Uh, this is a strange statement, but it's an end. You know, it's a means to an end. Uh, it wants to blow something up to say, you know, is there something better? Can we replace this? Because this ain't good. It's not working. And uh, and I I feel that. The act of provoking, of using art as provocation, is certainly, uh, you know, that's part of its goal, its intent, is to try to get something better, to try to replace this thing and say, uh, I'm, I have a problem with this. Uh, and I think that's a very healthy thing to do. To link in with that, Jeet, in your article on Wilson, you made a mildly stretched uh, linkage uh, between Wilson's work and uh, the Stonewall riots 
Um, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, um, I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, uh, yeah, people have asked about that, but I think that it's sort of, um, there's a kind of connection because what you have to remember is S. Clay Wilson was doing his work, um, his earliest work was pre-Stonewall, and it features uh, all these uh, crazy um, sexual adventures involving demons and pirates and um, uh, 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 um, dykes, as he calls them, and uh, they often end in a sort of polymorphous uh, orgy. Um, and someone else, um, so what you have to perhaps understand is that he was working in a context in which these images were shocking, not just because they were sexual, but because they involved uh, a lot of gay sex, and the, the very idea of gay sex being presented in a public way, in a way that's sort of like, um, uh, and not just presented in a sort of public way, but in a way that's like, uh, uh, takes it for granted, or that it just... Um, unapologetic. Part of life. An unapologetic way was quite shocking. Um, uh, and so, someone made a useful analogy between um, Wilson and the work of um, this American no uh, novelist uh, Samuel Delaney, who uh, is a, a gay writer and who was working at that time on a novel called Mad Men, um, or Mad Men, which was um, uh, sort of a uh, prose equivalent as Clay Wilson, featuring some of the most horrific sexual violence you can imagine. Uh, and Delaney, interestingly enough, wasn't able to publish the book at the time. And it took him many years for that book to reach print. But it's very much um, of that period. And it's the idea that uh, people um, shouldn't be afraid of representing what's in their imagination, that uh, what, the, what the mind can imagine, the pen should be able to draw, uh, and which is very much the spirit of sort of liberation and openness. Um, which is part of uh, which grew out of Stonewall as well. So, uh, so I, I do I do think that these things are all connected. Not to say Escalay Wilson has a political agenda. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say that he does, but that he's I mean he's uh, very much working. Um, uh, he's part of a generation, and he belonged to a kind of social milieu, uh, as which we can see in his work. So I I, I do think um, that that's very important. And in, in terms of like sort of you know censorship and the history of art. I mean, a lot of the art tradition that gets stopped at the border into Canada has been gay art, right? Like, the, often um, the bookstore Little Sisters had many of their books that they were ordering stopped at the border. Um, so the the fight against censorship was very much uh, part of the sort of you know struggle against homophobia and against the idea that people should keep their sexuality closeted or hidden or be ashamed of it. Um. It, the Little Sisters is an interesting example for folks that don't know it. It got to the point where they would order a book, it wouldn't make it through, and they would have friends at another bookstore in Vancouver order the same book, which would make it through. And it's pretty blatant examples of uh, customs level of homophobia. Uh, mm -hmm. Off off track there, sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, to me, it's really important for for acknowledgement is just how I I really tap into this idea of these kind of counterculture things really moving the dialogue to another direction, which you could kind of say uh, Chester Brown's paying for it kind of fits in that tradition as well, too. Yeah, 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 and which is also a kind of, interestingly enough, a work of black humor, because I think a lot of the reviews haven't paid enough attention to this, but that's actually a pretty funny book. <laughs> There's a lot of kind of uh, 
uh, dark humor in there. And but it's also a book about openness. It's about the idea that you know um, I think actually um, the uh, sex worker Annie Sprinkle mentioned this in her review that you know like there are many sex workers that talk about being sex workers, but she could aside from Chester she could only think of one other John that has gone public and said I'm a John. Uh, and you know as long as that it, we have that condition where people. Uh, you know, go to sex workers but don't talk about it, then we're kind of in a, um, that kind of keeps things in the shadow and allows the sort of more uh, troubling aspects of life, which is sort of violence that comes from the world of shadows to, to um, uh, have power. So I, I, I think, yeah, this agenda of openness is very important um, and it, it has both an aesthetic component and also a sort of moral political component. Now, Ryan, you're, this is the first of an ongoing series of anthologies, correct? Yeah, I'd like to do a, a black eye, too. And I have two black eyes. Oh. <laughs> <That's awful>. <laughs> <laughs> and then if I do a third, that's going to throw the whole thing off. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I'm working on and I'm putting something... I'm sorry, Rob. <laughs> that's okay. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to anybody who had to hear that. <laughs> But, you can uh, expect the I, humor in the book to be far better than that joke. <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, and I'm also pu- I'm putting together a book right now, another um, exhibition catalog anthology hybrid uh, called Morose Delectation, and it's uh, uh, Ann Smith has some work in that. It's from a small uh, exhibition currently on view um, in Detroit that I co-curated with a gentleman named Kerry Lauren. Uh, who's from a band called uh, Destroy All Monsters in the 70s here in Detroit. But So that's uh, what I'm doing now, but there will be another black eye. And the yeah. next one, you've m- kind of alluded to the theme being different for that one? I, I, I haven't settled on anything, but I'm turning some things around in my mind right now. Um, you know, I, I find myself in a strange position where I don't, I, I feel a little bit like an interloper in the comics uh, world. I'm not, I mean, I grew up with comics and I'm very intimate with, uh, as a reader and as, uh, but I, I come primarily from a studio art world. And uh, so I, in developing these books, uh, I'm learning some things. I'm trying to figure it out and I'm turning around in my mind. Uh, the idea of humor being a central focus, uh, uh, how much comics play a part of that. Uh, so that's playing a part in, in, in the second volume, my, my thoughts about it, how comics relate to it. I know that doesn't give you any information. Really, <laughs> <but> <laughs> Those are the voices in my head right now. That's what's going on. Yes. Yes. I'm a confused man. It's okay. Um, well, thank you all for taking the time with me today to chat Black Eye. Um, once again, thank you to my guests, Ryan Stanfest, On Smith, and the always welcome Jeet here. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thanks, Robert. Thank you. Of an enviable height 
And I've been known to be quite handsome in a certain angle and a certain light. Well, I entered into O'Malley's. Said O'Malley, I have a thirst. O'Malley, merely smiled at me. Said you wouldn't be the Knocked on the bar and pointed to a bottle on the shelf. And as O'Malley poured me out a drink, I sniffed and crossed myself. My hand decided that the time was nigh, and for a moment it slipped from view. Oh, when it returned, it fairly burned with confidence in you. Oh, the thunder from my steely fist made all the glasses jangle. Oh, when I shot him, I was so handsome. It was the light, it was the anger. I cried, friends I screamed, I banged my fists upon the bar. I bear no grudge against you, and my dick felt long and hard. I am the man for which you no know God waits, but for which the whole world yearns. And I'm mugged by darkness and by blood and by a thousand powder burns. Well, you know those fish with the swollen lips that clean the ocean floor. When I looked at poor old O'Malley's wife, well, that's exactly what I saw. Well, I jammed the and her face looked raw and vicious Her head, it landed in the sink With all the dirty dishes And her daughter, Siobhan I pulled bears from dust till dawn Amongst the town folks, she was a bit of a joke But she pulled the best beer in town Magnificent upon her She sat shivering in her grief Like the Madonna painted on the church house wall In whale's blood and banana leaves Her throat crumbled in my hands And I spun heroically around To see Caffrey rising from his seat I shot that motherfucker down
I flew about the murder. Mrs. Richard Holmes, she screamed, you really should have heard her. Mrs. Richard Holmes and her husband stupidly stood up. As he screamed, you are an evil man And I paused a while to wonder If I have no free will, then how can I be morally culpable? I wondered Shot Richard Holmes in the stomach Gingerly he sat down And he whispered weirdly No offense then lay upon the ground None taken, none replied to him To which he gave a little cough And with blazing wings I neatly aimed Blew his head completely off For 30 years To know what I am a stranger And I put new bullets in my gun A chamber upon chamber And I turned my gun on the bird like Mr. Brooks I thought of St. Francis and his sparrows And as I shut down the youthful Richardson It was Sebastian I thought of And his arrows And I'm glad that you all came And I leapt up on the bar And I shouted down my name Well, Jerry Bellows, he hugged his stool Closed his eyes and shrugged and laughed And with an ashtray big as a fucking really big brick I split his skull in There's blood spilled across the bar Like a steaming scarlet brook And then I note there at its edge On the counter, wipe my tears away And look Well, the light in there was blinding Full of God and ghosts and truth And I smiled at Henry Davenport Who made no attempt to move Well, from the position I was standing The strangest thing I ever saw The bullet entered through the top of his chest And blew his bowels out on the floor And I floated down the counter Showing no remorse I shot a hole in Kathleen Carpenter Recently divorced The remorse I felt 
animals I had It clung to everything From the ribbon hair up on my head To the feathers on my wing They must squeeze my hand And it's fraudulent claw With it's gold hairless chest And I glided through the bodies And killed the fat man Vincent West Who sat quietly in his chair A man become a child And I raised the gun up to his head Executioner style He made no attempt to resist So fat and dull and lazy Did you know that I live in your street, I said And he looked at me like I was crazy Oh, said I had no idea And he grew as quiet as a mouse While the roar of the pistol when it went up And he blew the hat right off the There stands some kind of man I roared and they did in the reflection My hair combed back like a raven's wing And my muscles hard and tight And curling from the business end of my gun Was a query mark of Cordyce I spun to the left I spun to the right I spun to the left again Fear me, fear me, fear me But no one did cause they were Sirens wailing and, and then a bullhorn squelched and blared. Drop your weapons and come out with your hands held in the air. Well, I checked the chamber of my gun, so I had one final bullet left. My hand, it looked almost human as I raised it bravely to my head. Your weapon and come on out. Keep your hands above your head. I had one long hard think about dying. 
and did exactly what they said. There must have been 50 cops out there in a circle around O'Malley's bar. Don't shoot, I cried, I'm a man on all. So they put me in their car. And they sped me away from that terrible scene. And I glanced out of the window. Saw Romani's bar, saw the cops in the cars. And I started counting on my fingers. Mm-hmm.